0: You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. Hello, I'm Anka Corbin, your host today. I'm the founder and CEO of Globig. Today's hot topic is probably one of the most critical topics to discuss for companies expanding internationally, and yet it's also one of the least understood. It's all about international taxation and accounting. Our fantastic guest today is Shannon Lamon. She's a partner at ID Bailey, a leading tax and accounting firm with 29 locations here in the United States. And Shannon's in charge of their international division. Welcome, Shannon, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, lucky to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself as well as Ide Bailey and the international division that you run. Thank you, Anka,
1: and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be with you today. So I am, as you said, a partner with IBailey, and I oversee our international division. We are able to help our clients go international from the US, and also we help clients coming into the US. I am based in our Boulder office in Colorado. It's a great place to be. Uh, But I also serve our other offices, and as you said, we have 29 offices across the U.S. We are primarily in markets where we're serving entrepreneurs and their businesses, and many times the question comes up as they're growing, how do we take our business international? And that's where we come in and are are able to assist. Ide Bailey has a very strong presence in the uh, Midwest and uh, Mountain West regions, And we often see our clients in a number of industries. Some of our largest industries are industries such as financial services, uh, non for profits uh, manufacturing. We also uh, do a lot of work in the agricultural space. And so we really have in our international tax area the ability to see issues from many different industries, which I think has been a, um, an exceptional um, add value add to our clients.
0: Excellent. You know, it's interesting. So what, what I found, and I imagine you see this too, is as a company is growing and they kind of see this early opportunity to expand and sometimes it's opportunistic because they may have a, some business that's going, hey, come into this country, we have all sorts of things you can do here. And what they'll do is they'll send a salesperson or uh, maybe their the CEO over into that market to evaluate, to kind of meet some people and to see if they can make some early deals. But you know, what are the consequences of doing that? Like what sort of business activities actually trigger a taxable event? Can they even do business in another country? Like how does that work?
1: Yes, we often see uh, clients that are expanding internationally because they've gotten a request from a customer. And so that can look, uh, take a number of different shapes. Oftentimes, um, they could be providing services or uh, purchase or, or selling goods that often have a service attached to it or just selling goods into a new market. And so the two things uh, that we want to be aware of and cognizant of is whether you're creating a taxable presence for yourself in another country, and that can come in the shape of creating a corporate tax presence or an individual tax presence. And oftentimes, uh, we look at the corporate tax perspective from two different viewpoints. One is income tax, and the other is an indirect tax, such as, Taxes that are similar to the US sales tax, such as the VAT tax, value added tax, or GST. And so we like to look at those um, taxes from the two two different viewpoints. And also we don't wanna forget about the individual. So the individual that you might send over to um, explore a market or procure a sale, they have a chance of creating a taxable presence for themselves as well. So we want to make sure that we're advising clients on what issues they need to be thinking about
0: when doing so. Oh, that's really interesting. I actually did not know that. So, so someone that's going over there may not even be aware that they could potentially be triggering a taxable event for themselves personally, not just the company, right? Yes. Uh, we
1: see that a lot in services industries. So for instance, if they're going over to perform some engineering services, There can be instances, if we don't have, for instance, a double tax treaty with a country, that just providing services and working at a client location for a couple days can create a taxable presence for an individual. Now, that's a little bit of an extreme case, but it can happen. Um, And if we have a a treaty with the country, then that is a little bit uh, more familiar and a little bit easier to navigate. And that's because most countries will say, that you can spend a certain number of days in that country before you create a taxable presence for the individual themselves. A lot of times that's 183 days, um, but we always caution that that 183-day rule has some parameters around it, um, and also it can be measured in different ways, and and that depends upon um, country to country. So it's a country by country analysis.
0: So, so there's, so they could actually do business for a certain number of days based on whatever that relationship is, right? Right, yeah. Huh, so the, so all of that business that they've done within that period, is that then um, taxable or is that not taxable?
1: Yeah, so if we start to look at uh, from the, com- uh, from the company's perspective, whether having that person there for a period of time is gonna create a taxable present. What we look to there is first, uh, whether the local law says that that creates a taxable present. And oftentimes local laws look very similar to uh, what we find in treaties. So again, looking at which country are are you going to? Do we have a treaty with them? If not, then we're definitely looking at local law, whether we're creating a taxable present. With respect to the treaty and often sometimes the local law, what they look to is whether you're creating what we call a permanent establishment or a fixed place of business for the company. So some of the examples of that are, do they have an office there that they're working from? Do they have uh, business cards that you know have an office location there? Um, are they spending a significant amount of time there installing something? So it could be equipment, et cetera. So installations, construction, for instance, have, has its own um, special rules. And so we really need to understand what they're going to be doing in the country uh, while they're there and um, also looking at whether there's any you know, special provisions within a treaty, for instance, to say that is or is not taxable. Um, one of the, some of the exceptions for not being taxable, at least under the treaty, are, for instance, just holding inventory there. So uh, let's say you are just, dis- you're distributing um, and you want to hold some inventory in a certain location, so long as you're not doing other things that are going to create a taxable presence, you can do that um, under uh, under a number of different treaties. Um, so it, it does just depend on whether you're creating that sort of fixed place of business for yourself and uh, looking at whether there's a treaty in place in that
0: country. Very interesting. So sometimes like a one-time thing, for example, if you have a trade show that you're hosting in a country, it may actually not create a taxable event for the individual, certainly, but would it then, even though they make income there, would they have to do something with that country?
1: Yeah, so that's a good example. A trade show, just going there, um, you know, they might not be um, establishing a fixed place of business there. Um, But one of the examples that I uh, see often is if you are putting on a trade show yourself. Uh, We often, in our not-for-profit space, for instance, have not-for-profits that are putting together seminars in a certain jurisdiction. And that may not create a taxable presence for them for income tax because they don't necessarily have a permanent establishment there, but it may create a taxable presence for indirect taxes such as that. So they may be required to register for VAT in that local country and collect that tax on registration fees. So those are the types of little nuances that you wanna be aware of. Yes, you might not be creating a physical, uh, a permanent establishment, but you could be triggering just based on what activities you're doing there um, an obligation to register and remit indirect taxes such as the value added tax or the GST some countries a sales tax.
0: Mm. And then, if they left, are they able to get that VAT back, um, or would they then have to you know pay those taxes and then they would just take the difference?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. If um, If you don't have a a taxable presence where you need to, uh, where you have expenditures that have that on them, essentially what you're doing is you're registering to collect that um, for the government. So you're collecting that on the registration fees. So you add that to your registration fee and then you go ahead and remit that back to the government. So it's, um, it's, it's, uh, if you were to have expenditures that you're making in that country, then you're also able to take a credit for the VAT tax that you paid on those expenditures and you would remit the net.
0: Right, very interesting. So there are all sorts of interesting things. Are there certain, I mean, I know we talked a little bit about that, but so for example, if a senior executive goes over, decides it's a good market, starts making some deals, are there certain activities that they can't do? Um, One of the things I've heard is, Um, That they can go meet with people and that sort of thing, but they can't actually sign a deal. They would need to go back to their country to do something like that. But maybe that's just hearsay.
1: Yes, and that's actually something that is changing. There is a threshold within um, the, the treaties. That says that so long as you are not concluding the contract in that country your salesperson for instance isn't going to create a taxable presence for you so let's say you have a salesperson in Germany they're working out of their home they clearly have a a physical place there um, and they're going around Germany and they're meeting with different customers the ultimate um, sign-off of that deal is happening back in the U.S. Well, so under current treaties, uh, they would say, the treaty would say that that doesn't create a taxable presence because the ultimate um, sign-off on that deal is happening outside of Germany. Well, um, under current um, guidance from the OECD, under what we call the BEPS project, base erosion and profit shifting they're recommending that that language is changed. So that if the um, ultimate sign-off by the parent company really just looks like a rubber stamp, they're gonna say that you have a a permanent establishment in that jurisdiction. So that's something to keep your eye on because it is changing, it hasn't changed yet um, because the OECD guidance has just been published this year and it needs to be implemented country by country and treaty by treaty. Um, so it's something to keep your eye on, and if you have instances in your structure already that look similar to that, then it's something to um, to start talking about how you might change your business model.
0: Interesting, and I would imagine that applies to like online forms and things like that as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, maybe you can give me an example of what you're thinking.
0: There. So, for example, the the someone that makes the. You know, negotiates the deal and then um, they go online to the headquarters site, which is based yeah. in a certain country, and then they go through the contract form and actually do a digital signature or sign it online, and then it goes to headquarters. I would imagine that, yes, will apply, that would apply. Awesome. Or does that today not apply yet, though?
1: Yeah, so if that ultimate sign-off happens, you know, the ultimate approval of the sale happens at the headquarters via that online site, then they would be fine in the current, um, in the current space. But mm. going forward, that's something that will likely cause a taxable presence if there's a fixed place of business somewhere in the country
0: very interesting. How dramatic do some of these rules vary from country to country? Is the EU pretty consistent? And then what about Asia versus that or South America? Are there any extremes or do they typically try to stay in sync with the treaties so that they're somewhat similar?
1: Yes, I would say Europe is very consistent. And of course, if you're doing business from the US into Europe, then you, it, it's, pretty consistent because we have a treaty with most countries. Um, if you're going into Asia, there are nuances in each country and there's not as much consistency. And South America um, is a whole another ballgame. So uh, all of the things that you thought you knew about going international once you enter South America, uh, you have to relearn because it's very different there. So Um, I would say as you're moving into different jurisdictions or different regions, you will find that you'll, you'll learn some nuances in each area that, that will apply.
0: What about even the difference between, um, so UK and EU, I guess we won't really know what happens with Brexit, but I was thinking the difference between, uh, the Republic of Ireland and the Northern Ireland are, because they're all members today of EU, is there pretty similar? Yes.
1: Uh, One example of of the, the change that could happen with Brexit is that currently for VAT tax, for instance, if you find yourself in a position where you need to register for VAT tax, you can do so in one of the countries and then remit your VAT tax for the rest of the EU uh, within that country well if the UK um, if, once the UK exits the EU they may not be privy to that system anymore and so therefore you could have to then register also in in the UK if you have customers there that have the, that that sales for um, so that that will definitely create some changes to what you're going to need to do in, in the UK or of the other jurisdictions that
0: are part of Brexit. Right, absolutely. There's going to be a a number of podcasts, I imagine, we're going to want to do to talk about Brexit as that develops. The only
1: thing that's certain at this point is uncertainty.
0: That's right. That's right. And today it's still the same as it has been. However, it's if you want to really be prepared, it's almost impossible to do because no one really knows yet. Right. All right. So now once a company has really decided, okay, this opportunity in another country is really worth exploring. You know, the first phase is often some sort of a, an exporting relationship for, for a physical goods company to maybe a distributor or an agent working over there, or even, you know, maybe they don't hire yet, but they work through professional employment agencies. You know, what are the tax implications for kind of a, an exporting relationship like that um, some of the things I was thinking about is you know how do you price products how do you you know how does all of that work?
1: Sure um, well with respect to exporting of goods I'll cover that first so one thing to keep in mind if you are a US company that's producing product in the US and you are exporting it, there is a, an export tax incentive called the IC and the way that works is it allows you to take a deduction or a commission that's calculated based on your export sales. And then that IC disc entity that you're paying the commission to is not taxable. It does, however, pay a dividend and that dividend is taxable to the shareholder of the IC disc. So essentially what it does is reduces your uh, tax. From the ordinary income tax rate that an individual or a company is paying to the dividend tax rate which to individuals is lower um, in the US. So if you're exporting goods and those goods are primarily produced in the US that's something that you definitely want to um, address early on because you can't take advantage of it until you have it set up and it's a relatively straightforward process um, And there's not a whole lot of, uh, there is some administration, but the entity itself doesn't have to have an operation. So um, that's something to definitely think about when you're looking to export. If you're looking at um, exporting in or, you know, providing services, for instance, in there with an unrelated party in another country, the biggest thing that you'll uh, just want to make sure that you cover off is making sure that you know who the importer of record is going to be, for instance, on good. So, making sure that that's addressed in any sales contracts that you have. Um, and if it's going to be you, then obviously you're going to need to have somebody to take care of that for you. So, that may be a freight forwarder, for instance. And that's really, um, it's more of a non tax issue, but definitely making sure that you understand the customs process, et cetera, exporting into another country. Once you start getting to a place where you have, uh, oh, I should mention before I go 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 in that direction that if you're using an agent, just be careful that that person is actually an agent because oftentimes companies, just like in the U.S., there's the dilemma of are they a contractor or an employee. You have that same issue that you need to address with uh, with agents and under the OECD BEST initiative, that is being heavily scrutinized. So we like to say, you know, if it looks like, if all the facts and circumstances looks like it's an employee um, or there's some question, then you want to make sure that you're addressing that with somebody that can advise you properly on that point, because you don't want them to create a tactical presence for you that you weren't expecting. One Mm -hmm. thing, that is um, a clear marker of them being more than an agent for you is if you are the only person that or only company that they're serving. So if they're you know a sales agent and you are you think you're doing things on uh, an arm's length basis, they're not your employee, but they're only working for you, well that looks more like an employee. So um, you just really want to address that point.
0: You know, I think it was important to note here, too, and especially in the EU, is is they are much, much more sensitive about that than we are here in the United States, and that the employment laws are much more onerous and much more complex. And so that is a really important point you just made that, you know, don't underestimate that and how big of a financial and, and tax issue that can become. So
1: and non-tax issue, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the employment, the employment
1: law piece of it is huge because if you don't get that right, <laughs> um, you've, you've entered into a place where you can get yourself legally in trouble. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so the next area that you would uh, move into um, is once you have a taxable presence in that country that you're exporting to for one reason or another, and you're going to in that instance have some intercompany transaction so even if you just have a salesperson if they've created a taxable presence for you from a corporate income tax you're going to need to make sure that the transaction that happens between you and that sales entity or sales i'll call it branch if you haven't set up a legal entity um, will need to be done at arms length. Um, and what i mean by that is Uh, taxing authorities will want you to properly compensate as if that sales entity was a third party for any sales that they make so that could look like a commission structure for instance in the sales phase and you'll want to have intercompany agreements or processes in place to deal with that so that's an area again that's being heavily scrutinized by tax authorities because everybody is looking for tax revenue And so you might have that when you have a sales entity and then maybe you go into distribution and you have a distribution entity in a certain jurisdiction. Again, you wanna make sure that that intercompany pricing is correct. And the, the term that we use for that is transfer pricing. And that analysis is usually typically done by looking at what are comparable third party distributors earning with respect to that type of revenue? What are third party sales entities earning? and comparing that to where you're at and making sure that that's in line. Um, and many countries have uh, requirements. Some of them have a minimum threshold, so you have to meet a certain number uh, amount of revenue before transfer pricing applies. But many of them, it just applies uh, across the board. Um, also, many uh, countries have documentation requirements. So for instance, the US has documentation requirements, which basically say that For all of your intercompany transactions, you need to document, and there are specific requirements of what that document looks like. And if you do have that documentation in place, what it does is it protects you from penalties should the tax authorities in the U.S. um, deem your profits not to be um, appropriate. So it's a little bit of an insurance policy as well. And you can also look at it from a planning opportunity. So you can use transfer pricing to say, you know what, we looked at our transfer pricing, it looks like we have uh, more risk than we thought we did in that entity, so we should allocate more profit. And sometimes companies look at it from an operational point of view. Do we want, is that the right place for us to have those, um, those risks and those functions? And if not, if it doesn't make sense, we can move those to another jurisdiction. So transfer pricing is something that um, very early on in going international, if you have another taxable presence anywhere in another country, whether that be just a taxable presence without a legal entity, which we call a branch, or if you set up a legal entity, you wanna make sure that you're covering up.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so now you've decided there's a real opportunity in the country, you are ready to set up a legal entity. What's next from a tax perspective, both for the company and the employees? How does that work?
1: So at this point, you really want to think about your structure. And when we think about structure, we want to think also long-term. So we oftentimes, this is the point where uh, companies will reach out and, and Thankfully, they reach out, but sometimes they don't, um, and we can we can help afterwards as well. But before you set up a legal entity, it's important to get advice on what your structure might look like. Um, I can give you a, an example of that and what happens when you don't reach out. So we have um, a, a client that um, has a structure that looks like a partnership in the US. So you have individuals that own a partnership, and they decide that they need an entity in another jurisdiction, let's call it Australia, for instance, um, because they've created a taxable presence there. And before reaching out, they just go ahead and set up that legal entity, and they start business operations. Well, the way that our tax system works in the U.S. is that... We are going to tax um, dividend. We are going to tax dividends from that company, and those dividends are going to flow through to the shareholders in the U.S. and be taxed at at the qualified dividend rate, so a lower tax rate. But the income that's being taxed, or the income that they generate in Australia, is also being taxed in Australia, and the individuals are not allowed a credit for that tax. So what happens is they might pay tax in Australia around 30%, let's say, and then they pay a dividend from those profits back to the US, and that's taxed at the individual level at, let's say, 20%, and we're now at a 50% tax rate. So that's not necessarily the best structure for them. One of the options in that, um, in that example would be to set up an entity in Australia that's that is eligible to make what we call a check-the-box selection. What that means is that from the U.S. perspective only, we treat that entity as a branch. And the reason you would want to do that is that if they plan on paying dividends on a regular basis, then they can take a credit for the underlying taxes that have been paid in Australia. Because that income as a branch will flow to their, through to their U.S. tax return on uh, an annual basis and be taxed there, and then they're allowed a tax credit for the taxes that were paid in Australia. So what that means is every year, the profits from Australia are taxed in the US at the ordinary income tax rates for the individuals, which could be up to close to 40%, um, but they get a tax credit for the 30% that they paid in Australia. So their overall tax rate is the highest, you know, individual tax rate that they may pay here in the U.S., which is still lower than 50%. Um, so that's one of, just one example of why asking the questions about structure makes sense before you set up legal entities. Of course, there are some things that we can do um, to, to help fix things, but it's much cleaner to do it upfront.
0: Would you say that the best time to engage and start these conversations is even before they're thinking about it or after they've realized that there's an opportunity and they've already kind of explored um, within that first 183 days or whatever that time frame is depending on the country. Um, when do you prefer kind of helping companies kind of think through this?
1: We will generally, if they're reaching out because they have somebody there that's going to be there and they wanna know the tax consequences of you know, just that initial phase, we will usually discuss with them what happens when they decide that the market is great and they do want to pursue it. Um, we'll, we'll talk with them briefly about those structuring options just so they have that in mind. But definitely when you get to a point where you say, This is a good market for us, and we do wanna pursue um, having a business there which is likely to be taxable.
0: What are some other pitfalls to avoid? Is there like a list you have of danger, danger, danger? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, You know, I think that we've talked through quite a few of those pitfalls. Um, The biggest one being structure and thinking about structure up front. Um, One example um, I see as a pitfall for companies that are coming into the U.S., if we want to just reverse the situation, is what type of legal entity they set up. Uh, We have uh, many uh, companies that come to us that say, we just set up an LLC in the U.S., we're going to start business operations there, and um, we want to uh, you know get a, we want to have a, a, an accounting firm advise us on uh, you know, do, maybe even do the accounting work for them and certainly provide tax uh, services. And that's great when they come to us right away. Sometimes companies don't get um, that far until they've been operating in the US for some time. Um, and what happens is, If, let's say, a U.K. company were to set up an LLC in the U.S. and that LLC only has one member, which is the U.K. company, uh, from a U.S. perspective, what that looks like is a branch of the U.K. company. And in that instance, the U.K. company is required to file a U.S. tax return because they have a branch in the U.S. And that was not what they were expecting. (laughs) Most companies are expecting that they have a legal entity in the US and it has its own um, you know tax personality and it will be file its own tax return well unfortunately the LLC is treated as a branch unless you make an election to treat it as a corporation so that's one big pitfall that we see is uh, foreign companies coming into the US and, and just choosing the LLC because that's uh, what a lot of companies or a lot of attorneys will recommend and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, But wanting to just get through those tax ramifications first before um, they really start operating is important because we need to make that election within 75 days of the entity being set up.
0: And does that have to be done before they really start operating, or can they do that later too?
1: It should be done within 75 days of the actual entity being set up. Um, So there, there are instances where if you don't do it, in that 75 days, we can um, ask for forgiveness, you know, that we didn't make it, but we meant to. Uh, but certainly, um, it's not just the operations, but the actual formation of the legal entity is an important date as well.
0: Right, and that's something we typically don't pay too much attention to, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so what are the toughest countries to work with, and, and why might that be?
1: Um, well, I always like to tell a, a couple, give a couple of different examples on um, on this. So, one example is China. So, um, China is I wouldn't say um, well, I would say difficult from our perspective. So, the reason is that it seems difficult is it's just so different. And some of the things that you would expect to be able to do that you have maybe done with uh, many other countries like in Europe or let's say Australia, um, you can do, you you just can't do them in China. And that's because they're just, it's um, it's a cultural difference and it's a formality difference and they have provisions in place that we're not used to such as foreign exchange controls. So, um, I was helping a client go into China um, once and we were meeting with uh, the advisors in China and the advisor asked so who is going to be your accountant um, for, for this operation and the, the company explained that they had a staff member in the US that was going to do the accounting and they literally laughed at them <laughs> um, because you really can't have a US person doing the accounting for a Chinese entity because you're required to have that information on hand available for an inspection by a tax inspector at any time. And there are lots of formalities around having invoices paid. Um, A company is required to have something called a CHOP and there are certain procedures that need to be um, made with respect to invoices being paid with that CHOP. And then also the other nuance with China is intercompany transactions aren't as easy as we uh, as they are here in the US. So um, you know if we set up a UK subsidiary it's very easy to cross-charge something, put it on the accounts payable, accounts receivable, intercompany charge, um, and all is fine. Well that doesn't work in China. There are very specific rules with respect to intercompany transactions. Um, In order for you to make a payment um, outside of the country, you actually have to take the invoice to the bank, and they need to be able to see the contract in Chinese, the invoice, and then they can make that payment for you. But it's not as easy as just wiring cash um, and sending things on as as we're uh, accustomed to in the U.S. Um, So that's one example. The other example is um, South America in general. Um, South America in general uh, is just—it's a different culture, and we often have clients that get very frustrated because time—the time of response—is so long. So there, that is part of their culture. There's not the sense of urgency that we're used to in our in our uh, U.S. world, and so it's a very uh, different culture. And in particular, if you're going into Brazil, I've heard many companies say that um, if we would have known what it was like to do this in Brazil, we wouldn't have done it. And so not that Brazil's not a big market, but it's just very different and very difficult. And so getting um, prepared for that in advance and really doing a lot of diligence uh, and legwork ahead of time, I think it's important to make sure that investment is worth it.
0: Mm, I've heard that too, and I've also, and maybe you can confirm this, is that the South American regulations, and especially the Brazilian regulations, can vary by region and by location, and they also can change very rapidly, and so it's very challenging to stay abreast of what the regulations actually are. Is that what you've seen yeah. as well? Yeah, that is correct. Um, one example
1: of that is um, transfer pricing, for instance. When you know we're used to the transfer pricing model of you make sure that your transaction meets um, meets a threshold that looks like it would be a comparable to if you were having doing that transaction with an unrelated party. So if I generally have a twenty percent margin on my sales to third parties that's what i would uh, be accustomed to um if i'm selling to my related party but in brazil they what they have is just mandatory margin and so (laughs) you're you're um oftentimes i mean if you have a product that's a loss leader for instance um you might pay tax in brazil on that loss leader and um, you're having an overall loss on the product in general. So it's just something that we want to be aware of and and go through that diligence beforehand.
0: Mm, Very interesting. Any other tips and advice for companies when they're really just early on considering this or, again, they have an opportunity that they want to explore? What's the best thing for them to do, and where should they start?
1: Well, I think um, definitely visiting is important and getting some connections in whichever jurisdiction you're looking at, getting connections there, uh, meeting, going there, meeting with, you um, I mean, certainly are you know, meeting with who you'd be doing business with, your customers, but also meeting with advisors, um, attorneys, accountants, maybe even um Working with, uh, many countries have um, economic development arms that are tasked with helping foreign companies come into their country. And they can really hold your hand and help you through that process and get you connected to the right people, even in your industry. So um, really going there is uh, what I think is the most beneficial um, uh, use of your time upfront.
0: Absolutely. And they can um, kind of get the who to talk to and what the general high level information is on Globig too. So that's a, um, yeah. another helpful resource as well. So what should I ask that I haven't asked yet? Is there anything that you um, would want to share as we um, start concluding the, um, the podcast? Was there anything that I haven't asked yet that it would be really great for companies to know? Well, one thing, I I
1: mentioned this briefly earlier, but what I just think it's important to highlight is that the global tax landscape is really changing in a rapid manner. The OECD BEPS project has really put a lot of changes into motion, and each country is tasked with implementing those changes. Um, Some may and some may not. And so just uh, making sure that uh, you're in tune with changes that are happening, whether you're just now going um, into a, a global expansion or you have already started that, just making sure, reaffirming the assumptions that you made when you, when you set up your structure, for instance, validating those with the changes that are coming or that may come in, and just making sure that you're in tune with um, the advisors of each country that you're using.
0: Absolutely. That's great advice. So, Shannon, if someone would like to reach out, um, talk to you and learn more about what you do and and see how you can help them, what's the best way for them to contact you? The best way
1: is uh, via phone or or email. Um, And we also have a website. So I'll give you all three of those. Um, Our website is uh, www.idebailey.com, and under services, you'll find international. And also, my phone number is 303-459-6750, and I believe you'll have this information in the notes, but my email address is slemon, L-E-M-M-O-N, at idebailey.com.
0: Absolutely. And, and Bailey is one of the featured companies in the Globig Marketplace, and you'll find Shannon's information and also some great videos that they've put together and additional resources that you'll want to take a look at. All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so very much for joining us today on the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. Join us next time for another wonderful podcast on international expansion. This is Anka Corbin, hoping that you all go global and go big.